This podcast is brought to you in part by Specialties. Are you in a band that wants merch, but you're not sure where to go? Are you looking for great quality and affordable pricing? Do you have a design that you'd like to put on a koozie for your favorite consumable beverage? How about office swag for your job or giveaway items for your events? Okay, you get the point. Look no further than special tees for all of your heart's printing desires. This is not my magnum opus listeners can act now and get 10% off your first order if you tell them could be better sent you. Visit their website at www.special-tees.com or use the link in the show notes to get the conversation started. You can even call ahead and visit their showroom to see the types of products they offer. Again, telling them could be better sent you via email, phone call, or carrier pigeon will get you that 10% off your first order. That's special-tees.com. Special Tees. If you haven't worked with them, they want to work with you. This is Not My Magnum Opus is proud to be a part of the Could Be Better podcast network. We're passionate about creating and using these platforms to dive into topics such as exploring lo-fi, impulsive, small, and otherwise overlooked artworks and creative practices, what happened in the world this week and how to laugh through or at it, and hearing stories from musicians from all walks of life. Check out these podcasts, Could Be Better, This Is Not My Magnum Opus, and The Weekly with Kiki, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit couldbebettermeh.com slash podcasts in the show notes to see the current shows on the Could Be Better podcast network. Come join us as we discover more about ourselves, the community around us, and maybe even something worth sharing. Or not. Now, here's our show. Hello, and welcome to This Is Not My Magnum Opus, a podcast about small and lo-fi artworks, creative practice, and what it means to be an artist. I'm your host, Nicole Ringel, and I'm here with my partner and producer, Spencer Newcomb. Hi, Nicole. Hey, Spencer. How you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing (laughs) (laughs) A-OK. So, uh, Nicole, I want to talk about the... uh, the first gallery I ever went to in Baltimore a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and it just so happened to be twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen, uh, and we went together. Uh-huh. It was yeah the first time I had been to a a gallery in Baltimore. We were going to see um, one of your friends' installations. I was super nervous because I am a you know I I really enjoy art, but like I come at it. I just want to say yeah, we were together. We were together. And I was really excited to bring you into that space. Because <laughs> we'd had all sorts of like conversations up to that point yeah. about art, mm-hmm. but never like in the same space as the art we were talking about, yes. except for like we talked about my thesis artwork that was like shoved into a closet, but like we weren't like looking at it. Right. And <laughs> so like, I was excited to share that with you. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, my, I have a musician's background. Mm-hmm. I played in hardcore bands and screaming music. We had music. read books together. But yeah, but then we had read yeah. books together. Like when we had met, I was trying to do some visual arts myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did some visual art yourself? I tried to do some visual Oh my God. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> do you so. want to fight this out? <laughs> you did some visual art <laughs> I guess I, I guess I tried to do some visual arts <laughs> I'm sticking to it um, but yeah so uh, 2019 going to see uh, your friend's installation uh, in downtown Baltimore uh, this is Leah who we're gonna be talking to today just just to put that in there um, 
but yeah, I was, I was a bit nervous because we were a brand new couple. We had been, you know, talk, talking about art, but hadn't really gone out to experience it together. And this is a friend of yours uh, that I had not met yet. So bundle of nerves for me. But anyways, so we, we walk into the room where she's set up and uh, on the wall, as you come in, there are these rags uh, in these shadow boxes. It's like kind of like a, a deeper framed. Yeah, um, I just want to like jump in to say that like, like rags barely gives it justice. Like, like they're, um, yeah, kind of like conventional, like kitchen towel mm-hmm. sort of like white rags Mm -hmm. um but they're in these just pristine three-dimensional frames that yeah are totally shadow boxes Mm -hmm. and each of the rags was hung so that you could see like the dimension of like each of the areas that obviously were like kind of like uh, embedded with dirt yeah these were like these were used rags to be Mm -hmm. sure and the way that they were hung it was really cool it it wasn't like just flat rags in a you know in a These picture were frame. Unlike any rags you've ever seen, <laughs> where you could see like really the dimension of like yeah. every single one. Yeah, um, we'll have pictures on Instagram of these, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, dirty rags in these very like pristine cases, uh, which is like kind of like a conflict, but I, I really didn't know what to make of that. I hadn't seen anything like it. I hadn't been to many galleries before this, uh, mm-hmm. so. And again, I'm just a musician from nowhere to oh try and, <laughs> I'm trying to like process like, so what do these rags mean? You know? Um, and I'm in my feelings cause I'm nervous. I'm like, I've got to, I've got to be on the same level as this really cool girlfriend. I have. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, anyways. Uh, so yeah, those are like right when you come in, that's the first thing you see. And then she has a couple of uh, videos playing, uh, and you can stand and watch and, on the video, it was this woman cleaning these brass plaques, uh, and then like along, like through the video, and like with all the info on the walls, like you come to find out that these are called Stolpersteins. Stolperstein. Stolpersteins, um, and they're these plaques all throughout Europe, uh, memorializing folks who have died from the Nazi regime. Um, who've been like you know taken from their homes and mm-hmm. put in camps uh, and 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 have been killed, um, and this woman cleans. This is your friend Leah. She had gone through Europe and had cleaned several of them and had taken video of of the cleaning process. Uh, and the video is just quiet and like commemorative, and you can just stand there and watch. And uh, it's just like this really precious moment mm-hmm. of like paying respect. And then, like, after watching this video, you turn around, and for me, walking into the room, and, like, there's this confusion around, like, why are these rags here? Uh, And then you can turn around, and I was mesmerized at that point. I was like, these, because those were the rags that she had used. Um, And, like, they're in the room with you, and it's like, wow, I just watched this beautiful video of, like, you know, paying respect. Paying um, homage. Paying homage. Uh, and part of that process is here in the room with me. And then so like, I'm just like glued to like looking at these, like all the, mm-hmm. the nooks and crannies of these um, beautifully yeah. hung, really dirty rags. I think that there's an element of our culture where we're like in the 21st century, like really used to understanding something without being in proximity to it. Mm-hmm. And so when there's a crossover between 
understanding and proximity Mm -hmm. um it feels like magic yeah it felt it certainly felt magical for like being very nervous going into this experience um and then like yeah walking through the room and then like getting to this understanding it's like Mm -hmm. i came in with none of that and then i and like even as i walk into the room there i'm like still trying to interpret like what's happening and then once you get it it like it like clicks Mm -hmm. and it's like wow this is extremely cool i'm i'm like glad i get to be a part of this like a witness to this yeah and it's almost also magical i'm gonna use that word again that dirt is considered abject Mm. it's considered like like it's what you want to remove oh sure sure (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and it's also what was on display in those rags right right and it's also the bridge between like the stolperstein that leah witnessed Mm -hmm. and also like it's what was removed but is also like as the viewer in the space like the bridge to the past for sure right it like could embody like every step that was taken Mm -hmm. on the um stolperstein which is like it's actually embedded in the ground Mm -hmm. right so like people walk over it so yeah Anyways, I like to imagine all the kind of like nuance in whatever material like kind of manifested there mm-hmm. over time. Um, that's where my mind goes. So like, yeah, to piggyback on that, like phenomenal job, Leah. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like what you were like, what you're saying like that, like the, the, the dirt on the racks is the bridge. Like it absolutely is. Like she has, um, she has a story of like paying respect that like she captures captures on video mm-hmm. that is like hers and she even talks about like there are moments that are not on on video that are just for her to pay respect mm-hmm. um and then as an artist how do you translate that to your audience like in baltimore uh bring the rags like like she, hanging the rags like brilliant like brilliant idea like it really it, it transforms mm-hmm. the like the space and my mindset um so yeah you're right like that is the bridge and i think so much of leah's work pays homage in some capacity so much of it is totally embedded in a really rich appreciation for history uh mm-hmm. and she she carries that out to a really Uh, great degree Mm -hmm. in everything that she does and i think that you'll hear that in how she talks about herself Mm -hmm. and also how that she talks about her work yeah i feel like that came across uh in that gallery in baltimore i certainly came away feeling like oh my god this is one of nicole's closest friends like this is like so daunting like (laughs) this is so cool like what am i doing here that um she just had a couple of more uh, a couple more notes to add before we get in, um, she wanted to thank Kathy O'Dell and Jules Roscom um, for their role in her kind of development during our time at the Intermedia and Digital Arts MFA at UMBC. Also, if you want to take a look at some of Leah's work before you give it a listen, uh, we've posted it on our Instagram. That's at this is not my magnum opus, um, and you can give Leah's work a good look before you jump into her interview. Nice. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for making the time for me to come over this morning to interview you about your art practice. Hi, Nicole. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is such a joy. Um, As we were talking before we started rolling here, we've been friends for seven years now, which I think uh, in terms of the, uh, the studies that have been done about this, that means that you're very likely to be friends your whole life. <laughs> Which is um, just a nice, warm feeling to start this with. But yes, me, I feel like we've made it. <laughs> we're, no, yeah. we're, we're in it to win it now. And I, um, friendship is also really, really important to me. And you're definitely one of my, my best friends. So this is great. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so we met in, in grad school um, at UMBC and actually shared a studio for a minute <laughs> uh, one semester there. Um, so uh, I've had the joy of knowing your creative practice uh, kind of from like early stages of like new beginnings that always happen in school um, to kind of like where you're at now. Uh, but I'm really excited to kind of take this time to do a deeper dive into some of your creative origins. Um, that's always where we begin these conversations. So I'm curious if we could kind of start to get at that mm-hmm. with um, your answer to my question, which is uh, when was the first time you felt like you were or you wanted to become an artist? Yeah, I feel like I remember it's interesting because I never considered it artist necessarily, but I feel like I remember when I was 12 that I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and photojournalist. Like I always loved movies and photographs and writing. And even as like a middle schooler, I was pretty involved in like wanting to know more about the world and like wanting to make the world a better place. And I distinctly remember that from when I was pretty young um and so like that was always the goal to be a documentary Mm -hmm. filmmaker and photojournalist and you were a documentary filmmaker for a minute and still are and and I am yeah but now uh, now I have like all these other things yeah yeah yeah. yeah um so that was really really important to me um but it's funny now like looking back I just wish like we were taught when we were younger, like in middle school or high school, that you can be like a documentary filmmaker and have these other art mediums Mm -hmm. and be a professor. And like, that's how you can make it work. Mm Because I remember people trying to like discourage me from like the documentary film world or like the journalist world, even when I was in college and like had gotten to my dream school because they were like, there's no money. Like Mm -hmm. you will never make, there isn't a job. And I just wish that like, even some of my professors would have been like, oh no, you just get an MFA and you do that. Like, I didn't even understand any of that of like how to life as an artist really, or like Mm -hmm. as a documentary filmmaker really until I was like on tour with the first documentary film I had made with one of my best friends, Roz, Mm -hmm. um, that we started in college and it, mm-hmm. I guess I'm like jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah, but. yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's dig in a little bit because um, I know your undergrad degree is actually in history. Yeah. So there was this impulse for something visual in the beginning. Yeah. Um, but then your path of study kind of took some different turns. So could you kind of um, yeah. narrate that for us a little bit? So the other thing I, so this is just like typical Gemini, I guess I wanted to study everything. And I actually remember when I picked UW or like when UW University of Washington in Seattle became my dream school, one of the many, many reasons was because they had a program where you could design your own major. Um, And then I took some like early classes 
that included history. I also um, was interested in marine biology, but I remember thinking like, I want to study everything so that I can make films about everything. Like I wanted to have the Mm. knowledge of like all of these different fields so that I could make films about them. That's so funny. I remember like in grad school, actually, specifically, that was like my number one creative block was like, I just feel like I need to know everything about a field before I like trust my voice in contributing to like, exactly the like din that is our current moment in like culture and like the way that information flows. Like it's just loud all the time. And I feel like I just need something like very knowledgeable to say. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's like something that we have in common is like that desire to like, yeah. Like, I don't know enough yet. I don't deserve Mm -hmm. to be doing the thing yet because I don't know enough yet. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think, you know, uh, we were talking before we started rolling again about, um, yeah, kind of experimental film or like non-narrative film or non-linear, like kind of taking a more abstract approach to a creative voice. Yeah. Um, Was that kind of like, I I don't know, I'm curious because um, in witnessing you, there's kind of like two sides, the like academic side of like wanting to to know and discover and research. Yeah. And then this um, creative side that's kind of uh, like the underbelly of that, that is completely like free and expressive and um, I'm gonna figure this out as I do it yeah yeah Yeah, I definitely think those two come together um but I think one of the really beautiful things about history was also that it made me such an incredible researcher and writer and I'd always loved writing as well and so I was like okay this is going to be a really great foundation like no matter what I do Mm -hmm. and um, and then when you were like oh well what happened with the visual I went to the art department and asked to sign up for a photo class. And the person who was in charge at the time was so pretentious and was basically like, no, we don't allow anyone who's not a major in to our photo classes. So at a school where you can design your own major. major, I know. (laughs) And so, which is so absurd. Um, But so instead I, I took some like photo workshops Mm-hmm. like that the school offered in addition with like retired folks and like other yeah, yeah, people yeah. and like other alums who would like come back in order to just, you know, take a mm-hmm. workshop like here and there. So that's how I kind of paired it together. I um, think also if I can just say like that's freeing, like as a fellow artist, like thinking about like how people learn their skill sets yeah. and like what's possible, um, that Uh, skill of being able to teach yourself and adapt to new materials. Like some folks like really lean into like becoming, you know, expert at a specific material. And then other folks are like um, kind of chronically interested in something else and kind of switch around. And so, yeah, that, that skill of like being able to be like, Oh, I want to be a photographer. So I'm just going to figure it out, you know, through like these workshops instead of, you know, a conventional mainstream, like, you know, you got to take the class, you got to like be a major or like these kind of like um, boundaries that our our culture and our um, systems kind of put around things um, are more flexible than we're told. Completely. And then it was just one of those things too, where I realized that like there were other ways to approach like the photo and photojournalism and documentary film, like life and worlds, like at school. And then I remember sitting down with another photography professor um, when I had a slight moment where I was freaking out, where I was like, wait, should I, should I have, 
should I also be double majoring like in photo or anything like this? And um, he was so kind. He like sat down, down with me and he looked at some of my photographs and he also looked at some of my writing. He was like, well, you've got a great eye. And then he told me he was like, stick with history because he actually had an anthropology background. And he told me all of these stories where there were times where like he would be like vying for a bid for a story and they would go with him because he could do photo and anthropology and write versus someone who maybe was he was like, maybe they were actually a slightly better photographer than me, but I brought all of these other skills mm-hmm. that like they didn't have. Mm-hmm. So he's like, it's good that you have now history and you can always learn like how to be a better photographer and how to up your game visually, like as a filmmaker and everything moving forward. But he was like, do not drop history. And he was like, I don't even think you need to double major at this point. Just mm-hmm. like keep focusing on the other things you're doing. Mm-hmm. It was this huge weight off and also made me feel like, that it wasn't a mistake, but an asset in addition, mm-hmm. which was what I had plans on anyway. So for sure, it was great. So, uh, wh- when did the the film piece like really like yeah. take root? So I think that took root actually. Um, I studied abroad in Greece my junior year, and originally I wanted to do the the documentary film study abroad that they had in the summer, but then they weren't running it. And so then the professor at the time convinced me, he was like, how about this? Like you come for the spring study abroad and you can do an independent study with me and do a documentary film in addition, like while you're there. Mm. And it was perfect. So I actually got 20 credits that quarter because UW was on the quarter system. And I was like, my undergrad degree in history was focused on classics. So I was like going to Greece Mm-hmm. studying classics and you made a documentary and made a documentary wow, like wow I didn't I even there. know that about yeah. you <laughs> yeah and it was perfect I was so happy like it was an absolutely incredible experience now the only downside was he actually didn't have the time to like right. teach me how to do things so he literally handed me a camcorder and a series of tapes and Whoa. was just like okay you go figure it out. Yeah. And um, I remember after I came back after my first interview, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, he was like, okay, now did you rewind the tape to a certain point so that when you start again, like your time codes won't be messed up on the cassettes? I was like, nope, because you didn't tell me to do that. Oh no. <laughs> so. You know, um, even in this process with this podcast, like I've never really done interviews before. And of course, like I'm, you know, familiar with technology enough to be like, okay, I can figure this out. Um, but I've had so many tech hiccups like on the back end that just make like our kind of behind the scenes editing takes so long. Yeah. <laughs> just like different errors here and there. We're getting better at it. But um yeah, that for like sure. kind of like learning curve is always um present when yes. you try something new. Oh my God. But it was it was one of those things where it was kind of it was so hard from like beginning to end. And then he got me, I think I also was able through like another independent study with him when we got back to Seattle. Um, I went and sat in with all of the um, like editing people, but he just basically made it so I was allowed to use the editing studios, but I had never, I like, I remember the first time I went in to sit down with like my bag of cassette tapes and looked at the computer screen and it was Final Cut Pro. And I was so intimidated and they just like gave me the studio. I didn't know 
I had mm-hmm. never used the program before. And I just stared at the screen, I think, for like half an hour and was like, this isn't going to work. Like, I oh need gosh. at least someone to even send me a link of tutorials or like tell me what to do because I I don't even know like the proper way to transfer these tapes over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so afraid that I was going to break something or like ruin a tape or lose an interview or something like this. And luckily, I wound up... Um, making friends with uh, so another undergrad who was in my third cinema class, which mm. was definitely one of the things that was a massive influence on me. That that course was amazing with um, Professor Tamira Cooper. And I knew that he was also like using the editing bay. So um, uh, my friend named Champ. So I like ran up to him one day after class. I was like, please help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Teach me what to do. Um, so, so that's kind of like the tech learning curve. I'm curious, yeah. like, um, being a documentary filmmaker is so relational, yeah. right? It, there's like a practice of just, yeah, being confident and present in yourself and yeah. being able to kind of, um, have the vision for a story and also adapt to what you learn along the way. So, so what was your experience of, of the kind of like narrative side of that? Yeah. I mean, the Definitely any of the, I'm great with people and it was great with story and that wasn't a problem um, and like transcribing things and everything, but it was really trying to like learn this video software and like editing software that, and even to this day, like I fell in love with Premiere later, like I absolutely hate Final Cut. So Mm. I remember at the beginning, like when you're such a, a newbie or like a rookie, I didn't even know that there were like multiple different programs that you could choose from. And then mm. like the thing that I wound up cutting together was just an hour of talking heads. Like I had very little B-roll at all. Mm. Like I wasn't taught a lot of that at the beginning, was slowly figured it out. So I always say that like Rock Rage and Self-Defense, which came after, was like the first documentary film, but this was like the first first. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. We don't have to spend like too long on it, but I think it's a really significant moment in sure. your yeah, kind of and development. I will say that because I did the Greek documentary, which I always say that even now I want to go back and like re-edit it and make it even more of a short and add a little bit of B-roll just so it can like exist in another form. But that even though it was like a really wild like teach myself sort of experience and um it at least gave me the confidence for the next thing that just came and like Roz and I always say that we feel like the the documentary we did together chose us to make a long story short we took a class together that was um basically about the Seattle like underground punk and grunge scene of the 90s And through that class, we each interviewed, um, she was in one group and I was in another, but we each wound up interviewing two women who were part of a nine-woman collective called Home Alive. Um, That was uh, this grassroots um, self-defense organization that was started in response to the rape and murder of Mia Zapata, who was the lead singer um, and songwriter of a punk band in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And we were just so inspired by both of their stories. And we were like, wait a second, if we've been living in Seattle for years and if we love that scene and all of that music, like how did we not know about Home Alive? And Mm -hmm. I remember we were just like standing in her kitchen at the time and we were like, I think we should make a documentary. And that's 
how it happened. Our professors were so excited. But that was another one where like I had a little bit of the background, but still we were very much making things up as we went along or learning, mm-hmm. learning as we were going along. And I remember there were times where we were trying to get an editor after and then and we like raised money and did a Kickstarter and got grants and traveled and it was great. But then I had to I had to do the editing again. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I, but this time I was like editing on Premiere on my like tiny little laptop. And, oh, um, but we just like, we made it work. And a lot of people are like, yeah, this is like a punk film and it fits the punk story. And it just is. And then it, yeah, it, um, we got into some festivals and uh, had this like underground tour in America because Bitch Magazine did two articles on us, which was amazing. And then it toured Europe. And I also still say that like the facts, I, I just had this gut feeling. I was like, I think that we should base our website on Tumblr. And mm. Tumblr was really big at the time, especially for like underground punk mm-hmm. movements and loves of those things. And I think the combination of like Tumblr, Bitch Magazine and the network we had at the time are really what like made it happen. Mm-hmm. And like the love of the story and like the power of the story or like all of the combination of things. For but. sure. That moment seems like it might like um, thread through like something that you mentioned at the top, which is this desire to make an impact in the world yeah. or engage with the kind of like dark and challenging issues of our time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that that moment um feel significant in kind of like bringing that back into the mix of like having studied history for four years yeah. and like kind of started to like dabble in documentary film and then to kind of like find that hook that linchpin that kind of like brings it yeah. all together is like super beautiful yeah and it was so amazing and like our professors were so supportive and they taught us like how to write grants for we got this incredible Verizon wireless domestic violence scholarship grant once and it was the weirdest thing ever because we like wrote this grant and shout out to Elaine Hag, who was like the um, administrator at the time. She was like, I really think you need to apply for this. And mm-hmm. we we're like, okay, we don't know how to write grants, but we'll try. Yeah. And those and, are like the really tough grants to get are yes. like the national, like big yeah. corporate corporate thing, where yeah. like you don't even have any relationships to go off of or it's totally. like not local. So like the pool is huge. So that's huge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she, and she, I remember like she looked it over for us once and we submitted it and we were the only team that didn't have to go back and re-edit it. Like we got it right away. Mm. And I remember Ross and I looked at each other like, okay, this is great. I think it was like, I think it was like $10,000. Mm. And um, we were so naive because we were like, that's all the money we'll need. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until later where, when we were doing like distribution and all this other stuff and like the the tours and things like that and music licensing rights. I, I remember negotiating with Pearl Jam Sony and Universal Studios when I was like 20. Just oh my God. Like explaining to them. And we had so much support too from um, like their communications, incredible team, Nicole, shout out to another Nicole. And um, she helped us like even just get in the door with them. But I remember when we were like negotiating the licensing rights and like each like Sony was waiting to see what Universal was going to do and Universal was waiting to see what Sony was going to do, like if they were going to give us a lower rate because we were like students and this project mm-hmm. was important to Pearl Jam because they also like loved and knew like the Gits and Mia and like all of those other people and mm-hmm. were part of home, like supporting Home Alive and everything that all of those incredible women did. And finally, after like 
months of waiting and like negotiating back and forth. Um, like they on like they basically like Pearl Jam told like the people in charge to the to like you know give us a break basically. Wow, um, which how was amazing! And then um, later when and that was just for like the tour, like the negotiating the licensing music rights for the mm-hmm. tour, the or tours plural. And then when we wanted to like put it on YouTube for free for people. And that's the other thing I was negotiating with them. I was like, listen, like this isn't a distribution deal. The whole point of this film was for people to have like accessible access to this incredible story of like arts and community organizing and like um, women's rights and human right movements and all this other stuff. We're not making money off of this. Like we just want it to be accessible to the public. That's all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember like running out of my nonprofit job at the time, like negotiating the rights on the phone with them again between Sony and Universal, Universal, like on my lunch break and then yeah, like coming yeah, back yeah. in. And yeah, that's how it worked. And uh, really just like figuring it all out as we went along. And we made like some mistakes, but it was also incredible like who wouldn't, though like there's yeah. always hiccups it, there's always hiccups even now you know mm-hmm. so but totally so, so from there um I think pretty much after that um project wrapped up is when um you went to the um grad program at UMBC yeah which um we were in together in the same cohort um and the degree was in intermedia and digital art so there's kind of a step there yeah from you know docu- documentary film that's a very expressive medium in a lot of capacities, but also um, certainly linear Yeah. to then like take this like bold step towards a more kind of like abstract and holistic approach to multiple mediums. And like, I think like drawing was integrated in there and photo was integrated in there and like installation yeah. uh, and, and things. So I wonder um, if you could kind of talk about the kind of impulse there to make that shift. Yeah, definitely. So um as we were, it was right before we were about to leave for the European tour. And I was still trying to figure out, I was like, okay, so this is an incredible life experience and we've been making it work. And we've both been like living at home. And I had like five jobs. Um, when we had like finished the film, I was like babysitting and doing some like freelance communication stuff and working at a restaurant and all this, you know, other stuff. I was like, but this is not a sustainable life. Like, how Mm -hmm. but like how do I life as a documentary filmmaker though and Mm -hmm. like as and I was starting to get interested in letterpress and like um printmaking and other art movements and more writing and things like this but again was still very much interested in the humanities and like human rights and other things and so I remember I went to Johns Hopkins uh public health open house, like masters of public health, open house. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, do I do that? Do I do that? If I'm interested in like general, like world care things. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And and it was so not the right fit. Like I felt like such a fish out of water at that open house. And I was just like, what is happening here? Like, this is not, I don't even think I would have gotten in, you know, like if I applied. And then um, I was looking, I somehow, someone somehow told me about like what an MFA was. And I started researching different MFA programs and found UMBC's IMDA. And I was like, well, that would be convenient, you know? And, right, right. And I wrote to, I guess it was Lisa and she told me to come in and I told her about like how confused I was and the life, the path that I was on at the time. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just so 
confused because I feel like I'm interested in all of these different topics and all of these different mediums. And I don't Mm -hmm. understand like how to make it all work. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to sacrifice one for the other. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, I'll always appreciate Lisa for this. She was like, you don't get a master's degree in everything that you're interested in. You get a master's degree in how to make art and how to tell stories and like, how did you yeah, think? Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh my God, that is, that makes so much sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were talking, like, I think what um, attracted me to art was like, first the idea that art is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like, totally the hardest thing I've ever done ever. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you're always reaching for something that you don't totally understand. So it's like this incredibly engaging and challenging process that yeah. like requires you to like, reach so deep within and also um like the horizons are kind of like endless it sounds like kind of like cliche but like um I think what Lisa shout out Lisa Morin um, Morin. (laughs) our (laughs) grad school director uh, while we were there but uh yeah this idea that um art is a kind of like umbrella that can contain anything you need it to exactly like fit what you're trying to say yeah And I remember like, I felt like this massive weight lift off me in that moment. And I was like, oh, so I like do, this is like the best combination of all of the things and you're not sacrificing one thing for the other. And again, I was also like simultaneously happy and so frustrated because I was so like trying to figure out my life like before then. I'm like, why aren't we taught that this is a potential path? Right, right. Like way earlier, you know, I feel like when we're young, in like, I don't know, career day or something like that. Mm -hmm. When we're really little, it's like doctor, firefighter, chef. Right. Or if artist is even mentioned, it's, you know, a painter. Exactly. Selling their work and and that sort of thing. But that's so rarely how artists sustain themselves. Yeah, exactly. So then um, after that, I got on a plane to Europe for the tour and decided that I would apply for graduate school, like we'll work for a bit and then apply for the next opening of graduate school. Mm -hmm. And then that's what happened. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Um, So then while we were in that program together, your work totally took a shift towards (laughs) some like performance, some um, kind of mysticism kind of like thrown in there. And also I think was informed by a lot of travel that you were doing at the time. So I wonder if that's a nice on-ramp to talk about um, the project that um, is our not magnum opus that we'll talk about today. Sure. It's interesting because I think still coming from like a history background and these other experiences, I think you remember like the first year in grad school is not my best year. (laughs) And I think it had a lot to do with just being really confused about what graduate art school is supposed to be. But I loved like having Sarah's class and having Perminda's class that first year of like contemporary art and theory and all of these other learning so much about these movements and sitting in on Mark. Mark Durant's class, like as a TA, was so helpful just Mm -hmm. to learn so much more about like what art is and what it can do beyond an art history context. Because I had taken a lot of art history classes in undergrad as well, which I loved. But seeing like contemporary art and learning more about performance and like media installations and printmaking and film and photo and writing was like really, really 
helpful and Mm -hmm. exciting in a lot of different ways. And I think we saw a lot of examples of folks like weaving all of those things together, like not even individually, but like bringing it all together where, you know, you know, even a thesis show in that um, program, right? Like each one of those artists has written 50 pages about the work that you see. And so many of them are like telling stories and really digging into, you know, yeah, big questions and issues and definitely. And that's one of the many reasons I chose our program too, because I I briefly looked at Micah and I looked at some other things, but I loved that our program was intermedia and digital art so that we were literally being trained for like any of the mediums we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't have it there, they were going to figure out a way for you to like, the great thing about the the consortium of University of Maryland is you could take classes at mm-hmm. other places, which led was one of the things that led to the Stolpersteiner project, which I'll get to in a second. But um, then, uh, yeah, those I think I remember I remember reading some stuff in Sarah's class about performance art, um, and at first I was like, I'm not sure about this, <laughs> but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then when I was when we were seeing so many other performance artists and reading more about their work, I remember feeling like drawn to it, especially feeling like that you could incorporate film and video. And if you going back to the like, not the magnum opus that not it took me a while to also understand that like, not every project had to be a feature length documentary film. Not every project had to take five years, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, at the end of it. And I was like, Oh, like, well, that opens a whole other mm-hmm. um, option and like series of potentials. And that's really exciting. And I think that's where like the idea for this podcast really came from was yeah. like that experience in grad school of like, oh man, critique is around the corner. I got to throw something together. And so yeah. you show something that's in progress and that um, uh, that unfolding of having to throw something together and having to not, you know, um, study every like yes. every last piece of what you're trying to say before you say it, like um, and understanding that something can be an iteration yeah. that like being incredibly freeing for creative folks who are also, you know, perfectionists. And workaholics. Yeah, I think that was the other thing. I think I was always even when I was little, like a very ambitious, like workaholic perfectionist kid like and in high school I was not captain or president of every club but a lot of them (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) in addition to like being in theater and like all these other things so um Um, Spencer and I like to joke um to each other especially these days when we're like very busy with the podcast and like we don't want to cut anything right but our lives are very full we joke like oh you can have it all like (laughs) you can do like x y or z and like still be you know a happy and thriving person but like at the end of the day it's like when you fill your your world so full it's it becomes quite a challenge but um I think we both have that like you can have it all um, yeah. mentality of 100%. like, like trying to, you know, become an expert in every skill and like, just keep on putting more under your belt. Exactly. But. Yeah. I mean, and recently I'm like, let me, in addition, take on like learning all of these experimental film processes and animation. That's fine. While, <laughs> while also studying like Italian uh-huh. <laughs> like, and, and teaching however and, and many teaching classes. full time. Yeah. More than full time. And like all of this other stuff. Um, But yeah, I just, there's so much that I want to learn. And I think you and I both feel that way, like that there's so much that we want to learn and do Mm -hmm. and experience. And 
And I think that like imagining that things are possible is ultimately like what propels your creativity forward, even when it's like you might overcommit yourself sometimes, but like, (laughs) (laughs) or I might overcommit myself sometimes, but it's like that ambition of like, oh, it's possible to learn this thing, which like we've been talking about the whole time is like what really propels you forward. But okay. So let's get back to the Stolpersteiner project. So the Stolpersteiner project. So having learning about performance art and as a medium in addition to filmmaking and media art and installation art, having that as a background for what, only a year or so was something that was really, really helpful when um, I was in Rome again and I was walking around and I remember when I was about 16, the, the first time I was lucky enough to have ever gone to Rome, stumbling upon, and this is the intention of that word, these little um, small square, mainly square-shaped memorial, metal memorial cobblestones that are placed in the ground, like embedded into the ground, um, either outside the house or the workplace where people were taken during World War II and during the Holocaust. And I remembered seeing those when I was 16. And then I saw them again when I was in Rome, when we were in graduate school. And I was just so moved by them and also feeling that connection of like history and memory and art as activism and all of these other things that I like deeply believe in. And I, at the moment, um, that I saw them, I realized they were really dirty, um, just, you know, because they're on the ground, they're in the street, people walk over them. And I kneeled down and started cleaning them with my hands, because I didn't have anything with me at the time, like I didn't have any tissues or anything like that. And then the kind of creative spark, like went off in that moment that mm-hmm. I could do a piece where I, the and the other thing that was really important about that moment for those Roman Stolpersteina where I just happened to be there like on the anniversary of mm. when those folks were taken mm-hmm. to the camps. And um, I... Wow, yeah. that's like um, such a beautiful moment as even, you know, uh, beginning to imagine the significance of performance art. Like yeah. I think, you know, oftentimes that feels like kind of... Um, a material or a medium that's like the the most uh, challenging to understand because yeah. sometimes it's so simple. Yeah, but that's such a um, or like radical or like all these different or abstract things. and people really don't get it or they think mm-hmm. it's weird and it's you don't even produce an object and we think so many so many things about art have to be like you're producing a tangible thing that can be sold, mm-hmm. you know? But what a moment of like just the crossing of paths there where like suddenly it's the uh, the coming together of all these different through lines yeah. that are just manifested in that moment, Yeah, right? That like, of course, contains so much meaning yeah. and it's all kind of like housed in like your body and the experience of the moment. And um, yeah, I think that's like so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And so then I... I remember I like tried to clean as many as possible with my hands and then later was journaling about it and feeling like that this could be like a performance piece in my way of connecting. And um, also, even though I'm not 
Jewish, there are so many things that we talk about in history, specifically during World War II, is that like America's the heroes and that we did nothing wrong and like all of these other things when we were very much involved Mm-hmm. in a negative way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like there were times where before we had joined, because um, I think a lot of people also forget that like America wasn't involved in World War II until after Pearl Harbor, like specifically mm-hmm. like that we didn't, we weren't, we didn't join the allies until mm-hmm. after Pearl Harbor. But um, we had like America, the government had turned ships back and of, you know, refugees who were trying to come. Mm-hmm. And then once Pearl Harbor happened, we had internment camps of Japanese mm-hmm. folks and Japanese American folks and everything and took land and all of and, you know, ended businesses and stole items and did everything that we were claiming to try and like liberate right. people from. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's the other connection for me, like as an American doing this performance art piece is to try to have this deeper, larger conversation around like the ways in which America w- was involved that aren't mm-hmm. fully in this hero. Right. Example. And like this, um, coming to the, um, this site with like humility and homage. Yeah. Um, definitely like in, in embodying that. Yeah. And to say deeper, so this is the Stolpersteine actually are an art project that was started by a German artist in the 90s in Germany. And he has since, you know, placed as many as he can throughout Europe. And to think that I also think they're the most beautiful, intimate memorial I've ever seen, because I feel like the way that America does memorials or not only America, but a lot of places. And it's not to say that one is better, um, Mm -hmm. but we tend to have these grand statues or these grand places and people go almost in a form of pilgrimage to go and you think about that thing Mm -hmm. and then you leave right but his are like embedded in in place and it makes me think of um your favorite term that I always think of you for is um palimpsest in a way right where it's those stones like all over Europe are like the reminder that no living people lived mm-hmm. here. And it's also not that long ago, which I think a lot of people forget too. Mm-hmm. Um, so for folks that don't know, a palimpsest is like a, a um, surface that has been erased, that something else has been written on top of. So yeah. there's kind of like a simultaneous meaning happening. Yeah. Um, and it's a really like rich metaphor to like understand layered histories in place mm-hmm. um, because there's erasure that happens all the time. And there's um, iteration that happens all the time. Just, you know, the fact of folks walking over um, these um, kind of like tiles that are the memorials. Right. Yeah. And then you're kind of going in and like erasing what they've kind of drawn on top right. to kind of bring to the surface again, um, like the original resonance of the work in some way. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, to kind of bridge, like, um, so we, we understand your kind of experience of the tiles and your act of, um, polishing or cleaning started with your fingers, but, um, there was a development of that work that then, um, I think it was at the, um, full circle photo, uh, right? Yeah. Yes. At full circle, um, where it actually transformed into an exhibition. So how did you bridge your kind of like very, uh, personal experience or embodied experience of this act to then translating that to a wider audience. Yeah, definitely. So then, um, I, 
you know, in that moment, I was just like, okay, I think that there's something kind of like developing here. And I remember showing, like, it all kind of came together really quickly after that, where I think everyone's creative process is a little different. And even mine is different depending on the project. But after that moment, there was this kind of everything sort of fell into place for the way that I wanted to perform or have that piece moving forward. So I knew that I wanted the next time that I saw any of the Stolpersteiner that I wanted to like be Justin Black, have white washcloths and water and, you know, wash the wash and clean the Stolpersteiner with, um, with the washcloths and have that filmed. And then I knew that I wanted the videos um, placed on the wall or projected onto the wall next to those washcloths that would be framed. Like, and mm-hmm. it just all kind of, it was one of those things where it clicked very, mm-hmm. um, very quickly. And, um, did that change your experience of polishing the, the stones or the, the tiles? Because like, kind of like setting up this stage yeah. to then have this experience, like, like what was that? Um, yeah. So I social? always have an experience with them where there's nothing being filmed, whether it's before or after. Mm. Um, and I always take pictures also of them and like do my own kind of like meditation and prayer, like of the names of the people and things like this that is not mm-hmm. photographed or or like that moment is not filmed and is like not for the public so it is still, mm-hmm. there's both like a private and public component that's happening mm-hmm. no matter what. Um, and the, I was really lucky that the first time I, I did it was when I was doing the graduate study abroad program with Towson that I was able to do because of our University of Maryland consortium called Arts as Sanctuary, where we were going to Berlin in July um, for the graduate study abroad. And it was all artists and art teachers and only graduate students. So it was this really special group of people. Um, and it was looking at how arts programming was being used to help integrate the over a million refugees that Germany took in during the Arab Spring, um, mm-hmm. which was exactly the type of work that I am like working towards wanting to do in addition to everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I asked some of the friends that I had made on that trip I told them about the project and that it was the first time I was going to be doing that. And like, would they come with me? And, um, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, in Germany, there are many of them, but, um, we focused on one area that was close to where we were staying. Mm-hmm. And, um, two of my friends came with me and they held the phones and like, I don't bring big cameras. I usually just shoot it on whatever digital <laughs> phone I have at the time and so we did it as a group like everybody cleaned one in addition and then also had me cleaning them and then we didn't know that there was a woman who was watching us from her apartment building which is where the folks had lived when they were taken and luckily one of the friends who I asked to come with me was the German teacher she she spoke German fluently Mm -hmm. and the woman in the window was saying to us asking what we were doing she explained about the my friend Laura explained the project that I was doing to the woman who was living in one of the buildings and she like thanked us, Mm. which was really sweet where she was like, thank you for cleaning them. Like they get too dirty. We should clean them more like things like this. Mm. So 
that was the first time. And then there were a few other moments where in Germany where I did it by myself, I went back to Rome and I cleaned them and I set up this like self little phone tripod thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And that kind of worked. But it's interesting because every time I clean some in different countries, I usually wind up making a friend at the time who will come and help. Like when I was in Greece, when I cleaned them in Thessaloniki, I was confused as to try and figure out one of the addresses. And um, I had gone on a walking tour that day for like a walking tour of Thessaloniki and became friends with the tour guide. And he was like, oh, I know exactly where that is. And I know exactly what those Stolpelsteiner are. He's like, meet me back here. Like, I'll take you on my moped and yeah, I'll help Mm. you like film it. And so then like we wound up talking the whole day about all of that and about the how Thessaloniki in itself used to be this incredible um, city of all of the different religions living in peace together. Um, which is really beautiful. And uh, and then he told me a lot of the things that he knew about um, like Jewish history in World War II and, and Thessaloniki mm-hmm. and all of these other things. So it winds up always being this like really interesting connection um, with mm-hmm. folks who like are happy to help or like want to be involved and um, or like they, I get lost and they know where they are or yeah, something yeah. like this, you know? And I think, um, travel has been and continues to be a huge component yeah. of your creativity. Um, I wonder if you want to speak to that a little bit more broadly, like outside of, um, the Stolpersteina, like, um, because you just were traveling for six months yeah. straight. So, um, <laughs> like, uh, I wonder if you could speak into like, uh, uh, how you approach kind of integrating travel into your creativity and like what travel does or kind of brings to the table for you? Yeah. Um, that's such an interesting question. I, I don't know. I think also ever since I was younger, I was always really interested in other places. And and um, actually, I think the best way to put it is what my professor said when I was in Greece studying abroad in undergrad where he talked about like being a citizen of the world more than an, of like one particular place. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that's always kind of like resonated with me because I don't know, I I some I know I've talked with you about this sometimes where I sort of feel like I belong everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am really interested in a lot of these stories that are like lost or intentionally erased and like wanting to tell more of those or be involved in telling more of those obviously in a way that's like ethical and where you have a natural connection. Um, And there's just something really freeing about being able to like make work wherever you go. Also, I remember when I was doing the the graduate study abroad in Germany that our, our um, graduate professor folks had given me the task of having to do a performance art piece every day over the summer because they were like, all right, if you're going to get into performance art, then like now you have to do this. Like now you have to think like very creatively. Mm -hmm. And then in that way, it also helps kind of get out of this idea that like you need to have one studio in one space, like in order to be an Mm -hmm. artist or in order to have a creative practice. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just, I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, And I think different parts of me are different creative ideas um, spark when you're like outside of your comfort zone or mm-hmm. when you're meeting new people or seeing new places or learning about other histories or actually seeing specific sites. It's, um, yeah, 
I don't know if I answered that very well. But I think you did. I think you did. Um, So we're getting in our last like 10 minutes or so. So I wonder if you want to speak to like um, anything that's like holding your interest these days or like what you have um, kind of like unfolding creatively now. Well, in terms of the Stolpersteiner project, um, I'm still doing it. One of the reasons I was traveling um, for at least like six or seven months was to be able to continue cleaning more of them. Um, And it's one of the other reasons I love that project is in one way, it's like not the magnum opus, right? Because it is simple in many ways, even though it's like powerful in a lot of other ways. But it's something that I know that I'll continue to do like forever in my entire Mm. artistic practice. Like it's forever ongoing. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever I travel anywhere, I see if they if there are Stolpersteiner present. And um, something else I started to do was to try to buy the washcloths specifically at like local markets of wherever those Mm -hmm. towns are, wherever Mm -hmm. the places are, Um, which was like another intentional choice that kind of happened and was growing like along with all of it. Um, And uh, that's also a piece that's specifically like the the framed washcloths like are not for sale, like the videos are not for sale, like that's it's because so much I feel like of our art world and our practice almost Mm -hmm. like has to fit into capitalism in so many ways. Right. But that's like one that I feel like I'm like protecting, like, or the only way I could ever see it like existing in some other form that way is like if a museum like wanted to buy the entire thing and then like most of that money would like go to some donation or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, other, the two other major things I'm working on right now are, um, two experimental like essay film documentary essay films one is about um the horseshoe crab so that's uh another reach or like other connection to one of the thesis pieces that I did in graduate school Mm -hmm. um and the importance of the horseshoe crab and like how incredible they are and it's like one of the oldest living creatures on the planet but um also are very much in danger uh and then Uh, The other one I'm working on is um, a essay film, experimental documentary essay film about my family history and the trying to connect with my ancestors and more of their stories. And um, it's also, I guess, kind of a meditation on identity. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really excited for that one because it feels like almost connected to um, the Stolpersteine in a way that's yeah. like paying homage to ancestors. So a more direct link and also this like kind of uncovering of the self is kind of opened up in yeah. that that connection to it. So I'm excited to see what comes yeah. with that one. And then in that one, I'm using um, I'm, both of them. I'm shooting mainly on eight millimeter film and I'm using I've learned uh recently and I'm so excited about how to hand develop film in like an eco-processing way so using like flowers or wine or coffee in order to develop film without chemicals um and then specifically to try and develop the film with native plants and flowers like to where they were from in Italy and like other and Poland and other things I had no idea that was even possible that's amazing we're gonna have to talk offline about that (laughs) (laughs) so they're both in progress right now we'll see um I'm hoping that the horseshoe crab film will be done in like early fall um but the the ancestry film I think is gonna take a little more time Mm -hmm. (laughs) so 
Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again for making the time to talk with us today. Yeah, I really appreciate you. it. This was wonderful. For images and links to the artwork we discuss on the show, follow us on Instagram at This Is Not My Magnum Opus. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also leave us a rating or add a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Music for this podcast was written and performed by Frederick's resident shoegaze band TV. That's T-E-E-V-E-E period. This Is Not My Magnum Opus is proud to be part of the Could Be Better podcast network. Executive produced by Chris Perry and Colin McGuire of Could Be Better. This show is made possible by a Maryland State Arts Council creativity grant. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week. Do you like change? Do you love the familiar smells of your bedroom studio? Listen no further, friends, because the Could Be Better podcast is back and as disappointing as ever. Indeed, Chris, this season we are changing almost absolutely nothing. The show will drop on Thursdays and we hope to include guests. We'll also shamelessly plug any and all events of which we are part. So like and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or check out our website, www.couldbebettermeh.com or let's pretend this never happened. I know I will. Me too. And do not forget this could be better.